known Sung Tech for almost five years now. First time I met him, he was what? How old were you? Something like that, which is weird. Uh, but I still remember a couple years ago when we were in Haiti, and uh, if you knew Sung Tech before, and you knew how he was like before he went to Haiti, and then you see him now up here doing this, um, it literally blow your mind. Because even a couple years ago, and I don't think Sung Tech minds that I share this, um, he was unsure of who God was. He didn't even know if God was real or if Jesus was worth following. And remember, we had some really good conversations surrounding those things. And to hear him speak and to see what he's doing and what God is doing in his life is just absolutely uh, fantastic. So, uh, anywho, Sung Tech, thank you so much uh, for that. Um, if you want to share his story with anybody else, it'll be on our YouTube channel, uh, hopefully midweek, um, and so you can go check that out, or if anyone wants to. Um, and if you want to uh, find out any more information about the summer camps that he was involved with, go speak to him, and he'll be, he'll be much uh, glad to speak to you about that. Cool. All right, let's shift gears uh, and kind of jump in into the thing. And so if you kind of want, I've learned this trick, you can kind of just shake your shoulders out a little bit, and it helps you to refocus, okay? Cool. Um, I think it's, I think it's really appropriate and safe, unfortunately so, to kind of echo and affirm, I think, what everyone knows to be true in our world, that the world that we live in is one that is really violent and chaotic, right? And the psalm of, our, the, psalm of the day today, Psalm 46, will show us that nature is violent, that governments and politics is a violent thing, and people in and of themselves are very violent. And again, though this is really unfortunate, it's a simple truth, I think, that we must live with. Um, this week, uh, as I was kind of preparing and, and, and thinking and praying, uh, I opened up Facebook, which is something that I do, just kind of see what my friends in the world are doing. Uh, I scrolled upon the page of one of my friends. His name is Tim Uyang. He's a lead singer of a band called Tim Be Told. Um, you may know of them. Uh, anyways, on his page, he posted a video about this guy named Brandon Rogers. Brandon Rogers, he is a, um, basically, long story short, he's a devout Christian. He's 29 years old. He's a, grad, a graduate of my college, uh, UVA. That's where I met Tim. Um, and Tim and Brandon sang in a lot of gospel choirs together while they're in college. Brandon is a 29-year-old family medicine doctor. Uh, he had just become an MD, finished out of med school, did all the fellowship, all that kind of stuff. And Brandon, one of his gifts in life is that he was given the gift of singing. And so one day, as we, many of us like to do if we like to sing, he posted a video of him singing Boys to Men, End of the Road, or one of the Unbended Knees, something, one of those things. And it was so, like, it went viral, and Boys to Men, the band, saw it, and they invited him out to come and sing at what, three of their concerts in Las Vegas uh, about a month and a half or two, two or three months ago. And he came out, and there's videos of him singing on stage and then whatnot. But the video was from America's Got Talent. So he auditioned for America's Got Talent, and he actually made the audition. He went on, he sang a Stevie, uh, Stevie Wonder song, um, and he did an amazing job, and he got an all four yes from all the judges. But the reason why Tim was sharing that story was because two days before that uh, video aired, he was in a car with fellow co-workers. One, he was a passenger. There was a, a guy who was driving and a guy in the back seat. The driver, after a long day of work, fell asleep. They crashed on the side of the road and ran into a tree, and above the three, Brandon Rogers, he passed away, 29-year-old family medicine doctor. Um, done. And America's Got Talent, on, based upon his family's wishes, decided to air uh, his audition, and it's excellent. Um, and I actually know people who know him personally because we all went to the same school. We were uh, just a few years different. I think he came in when I had just graduated from my college. Uh, it was just like, man, 
you know? And then literally two days later, come to church, and I'm talking to some of the pastors, and then I find out that a pastor that I kind of know, some of the pastors in our building know well, his son was riding a bike, got into a car accident, or got hit by a car, and he passed away three days ago. He was a sophomore in college, exactly what Tung Tech is going to be this coming fall. Now, you hear these stories, or if you read the daily news, or if you go on CNN or whatever, I think it's simple to say that we should be quite aware and really just understanding of how chaotic, violent, and painful our life can be. The earth, simply put, is a violent place. Consider this quote by Eugene Peterson. It'll be on the screen. It says, The numbers are appalling. Murders, rapes, assaults, robberies, child abuse, spouse abuse, political terrorism, and wars. The cruelties that people think up to inflict upon others surpass our abilities to take it in. And when we see what people do to each other and to the land we want, we, and to the land, we want to leave for the hills. But no sooner than when we get to the hills will we find ourselves in the middle of another kind of violence. A volcano erupts and destroys mountains. A flood roars over riverbanks and, down, uh, and drowns a ranch. An earthquake opens a chasm in the earth, toppling everything that is erect and swallowing it in its gorge. The earth is a violent place, he says. It is violent in the city, and it is violent in the country. It is violent whenever people get together, and it is violent when people don't get together. And so when we think of these things, the question that arises is, what are we supposed to do? What can we do? Is there anything that we can do other than what people tell you to do, which is to rise above, or be stronger, or deal with it? It'll be okay which I think all of you will probably recognize if anyone has ever said that to you about any of your issues or your problems or your pains. It never feels good, and you, truthfully speaking, may want to smack them in the face because you're so upset that they would have the gall to say that to you. But this, and things like this, is one of the major reasons I love the Psalms. Because as we saw last week, Psalms not only confront these major and important questions of life, They ask them, but they deal with them. They deal with them honestly, openly, authentically, genuinely. In other questions, in other uh, other words, the tough questions of life, the heart-wrenching realities of life are not ignored or they're not swept under the rug. They're not oversimplified with a God has a plan and there's a reason for everything, as often we might have been told when we were young or growing up. No, the Psalms, and especially the one we'll read today, Psalm 46, answers and gives us an answer as to what we should do in situations like this, which is simply to pray. And we've been learning this summer that the Psalms are a collection mostly of prayers that we should pray. But we have a problem, though. And you may have heard this before. When life gets real rough and things go crazy, you should pray, right? Pray. It'll be okay. Another statement that I'm not so fond of. And so you might be asking, Pastor, what does praying actually do? Like TBH, most of the time, praying doesn't actually seem to do anything. And again, TBH, isn't praying kind of like just taking it in and just holding it in and just being still? Hopefully we'll learn today, no, it is not. Praying is a way of dealing with the violence head on without simplifying it or trivializing it or making it nothing. 
healthy prayer, particularly, does not allow us to withdraw or just take it in and suppress things. No, prayer is so much more than that. And so today, as we uh, dig into Psalm 46, we want to answer two main questions that I think is going to be helpful for all of us in life in general. When things get rough, or just in life in general, particularly when things are going crazy and things are tough, why should we pray? What does praying even do, right? Why do we pray? Question number one. And the second question we want to answer is, how then do we pray if we are indeed to pray? Cool? Why do we pray? What does it do, right? And how do we pray when we understand we should pray? So if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and open up to Psalm 46. If not, it'll be on the screen as always. And we will read this together, pray, and we'll just kind of jump right into it to answer these, I think, very important questions. Psalm 46. As always, I'm reading in the NASB. Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, and though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. Selah. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms, they tottered, and he raised his voice, and the earth melted. Yahweh of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Selah. Come, behold the works of Yahweh, who has uh, wrought desolations in the earth. He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and he cuts the spear in two. He burns the chariots with fire. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Yahweh of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Selah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together and jump right in. Father, help us right now to Selah, to quiet our hearts and our souls and our minds and to be attentive, to pay attention and help us to see what you are saying. For indeed, I think we can say that it may seem silly, and most people will say it is silly to pray when life is going chaotic, when life is tipsy-turvy and it's violent and it's hurtful and it's painful and it's embarrassing and shameful, that what you teach us to do is to pray because sometimes, if we're being honest, praying seems like a cop-out. But help us to see why we pray, what it does, and why you would tell us that the most important thing is to pray. Above all, what we need to do is pray. Teach us, O Lord, this day we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to first break down the psalm for you because I think it's really important to do so. So it'll be uh, on, the sc- on the screen and you can kind of take a look at it. But Psalm 46 is divided into three really kind of neat sections and it goes like this, okay? Verses 1 through 3, you'll find, first you'll get a description of God and that he's our helper. Then you'll see a description of violence in nature, right? The earth is changing, the mountains are like shaking and slipping into the sea, the sea's roaring and foaming and all that kind of stuff. And then, I I think there should be a a refrain that says, the Lord of hosts, or Yahweh of hosts is with us, God of Jacob is our stronghold. Then verses 4 through 6, you'll find a description of God's city and its river. 
Then you'll find a description of the political violence in the, uh, in the world, that nations are in uproar, the kingdoms are tottering, the earth is melting, so on and so forth. And then again, that refrain, Yahweh of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our stronghold. And then verses 8 through 10, the description of God, a command that he gives us, right? And then you'll see military violence, wars, bows, spears, chariots of fire, and so on and so forth. And then in verse 11, again, the refrain, the Yahweh of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our stronghold. Now, first thing you might say if you are paying attention and reading, you'll say, Pastor, you're lying. The first section doesn't have the refrain, Yahweh of hosts is with us, God of Jacob is our stronghold. And that's a great observation. In our modern translation of the Bible, it's not there. And the reason why it's not there is because in the oldest manuscripts, it's not there. And basically, let me tell you what happened. Back in the day, someone wrote or orally spoke this psalm. And then it was someone's job, one person's job, to write the psalm down and have it. But as you know, back in the day, we don't have computers, we don't have printers, we don't have anything like that. They're just writing on pieces of like bamboo parchment paper with like their ink. Okay? And later when the Bible came to be what it is, a lot of times what they would do was they, people were hired or people were given the task of taking the original text, right? Like an original letter that somebody wrote and they would sit there and have to hand copy everything. Okay? Now again, no printer, none of this stuff. So a lot of this stuff doesn't really hold uh, a long time. It kind of maybe smears and kind of all these things. So when people were copying, it didn't always go well. And so the oldest kind of copies of the original didn't include the first refrain, Yahweh of hosts uh, is with us, God of Jacob is our stronghold. But most people agree, and I agree with them, that if you kind of read and understand how the uh, poet or the writer is doing it, and even with the three selahs at the end, which is a way of being like pause, break, pray, you should see repetitions and parallelism, and basically so they all agree that it should be there, okay? So again, three neat sections very similar, very patterned, description of God, violence, refrain, description of God, violence, refrain, description of God, violence, and refrain. And the reason why I break down the structure for you, because if you kind of then look at the way it's structured, which is very neat and orderly, something and a clear theme, I think, begins to really emerge and crystallize. And here's what I think the theme of Psalm 46 is trying to say, the main thing. Violence and chaos are real, like really real. But no matter how much the violence, how much the chaos, no matter how much violence is in your life, violence and chaos is never the subject. Because God is the subject. And that God, regardless of how much chaos and violence is in your life or surrounding you, always requires more of my attention than the violence. This is why we pray. See, the earth is a violent place. Do you agree? It can simply be overwhelming. If you read the news, if you watch the highlights of anything, it's terrible. And if you read it and you hear it, our minds, it lingers on it. Our hearts, it lingers. And what we do generally is we focus on the violence. We focus on the terror. We focus on the mess. But what Psalm 46 is telling us to do is do not do this. When you pray this psalm, what we are learning to do is, that, is, is to not deal with what's wrong in the world, mostly, but to deal with the God who is in the world as we are in the world. Now, are you seeing what this does? It's a very small little shift, but when we pray this prayer, what we're doing is 
We're dealing with the violence. We're not saying, you know, violence doesn't exist. We're not saying it's unimportant. We're not saying it doesn't, you know, it's like just like forget it or like sweep it under the rug or just pretend it's not there. No, no, no. We are dealing with the hurt and the pain, but what we are saying is God is bigger than the violence and therefore we keep the violence in perspective. Praying this psalm in the midst of anything takes our attention, our eyes, our ears, and our hearts and our souls, and then it goes, God, I'm going to look to you who is greater than all this other stuff. Because God is the most central. He's the most powerful. He's the most important. And then if you start to do this, then what it does is it frees you from the onslaught, the never-ending barrage of stuff that comes into your mind, voices and things that are telling you. And if you've ever been in a tough situation, the first hurt is bad, and then afterwards, all these different voices just pile on top and go and just makes it worse and worse and worse. And what praying this prayer does is it frees you from that and it actually sets you into an ever-deepening experience of grace and joy. Now, you might be saying, okay, pastor, sounds cool, but let's be real. Like, how does prayer do that? It's nice for you to say prayer does, but I've never really experienced it maybe, but how does it do that? Prove to me that it does, and this is how it does. Prayer does this. Prayer refocuses our attention. Prayer frees us from the hurt and the pain of the, of the world that comes because first it says, and it repeats again and again in the psalm, that the Lord of hosts, Yahweh of hosts is with us, and the God of Jacob is our stronghold. Now this, I think, is the heartbeat. It's kind of the main central thing. It's a thing that beats around the prayer. It's repeated three times after each section with the Selah, which is saying to be quiet and to be attentive. Now let me explain to you what these words mean. Yahweh of hosts is literally Yahweh of armies. The word host in Hebrew means armies. The vast, the angelic troops who swiftly and efficiently do everything that God tells them to do. Okay? Yahweh is the is, 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 is the, Yahweh is the leader of the vast angelic armies, basically, the psalmist saying. The God of Jacob is the God who wrestles with Jacob. If you know the Old Testament story, Jacob wrestles with God at Peniel, and then he comes into this place where he sees and he understands God so much more intimately and really than he ever had before, right? So Yahweh of hosts is the powerful God, the commander of all the armies, and the God of Jacob is the personal God, the one who will wrestle with us, be with us, answer us, and know us. But it's interesting, if you read, that it says that Yahweh of hosts, the commander of the armies, is with us, and that God of Jacob is our stronghold. Because if you think about it, it seems a little backwards, doesn't it? Because I think you and I would want, for instance, that we would want the powerful God, the commander of all the armies, to be our stronghold, our refuge, our protector, right? You want someone big and powerful to be your protector against the enemies, right? And you would want, I think, the personal God, the God of Jacob, to be the one that is with you. But the psalmist, per like on purpose, deliberately flips the two. And I think in doing so, really makes us see who God is a bit better. What the psalmist is saying is this, that a powerful God is the one who befriends us, and a personal God is the one who protects us. That the one that is most powerful in the world is our intimate friend and lover and bride or groom, and that the powerful God is the one who loves us. See, it's like this. I think we oftentimes we want the powerful person to protect us and the loving person to be with us. 
But when God flips it, this is basically what he's doing. You remember the story about Kara I told you last week? That when I hold her, the whole entire world disappears. This week, she made it even more clear. I was holding her. Glow was on the couch, and I think Glow tried to come nearby, and then she literally took her hand and shoved Glow's face out of her, and she said, no. But here's the reason. I, to my daughter, am the most powerful thing she's ever seen. And so the most powerful thing is with her and protecting her. But because I'm the powerful thing who loves her and is with her, she knows then that I, who is powerful, but also who loves her, will then protect her. Do you see how this is working? You want the powerful person to be with you because then it gives you all the security in the world to feel like you're on top of the world and you can do anything. And then to know that the powerful person is also the person that loves you, then you know for sure, without a shadow of a doubt, that he or she will protect you. Why? Because he loves you. In daddy's arms, all other things disappear. This is what prayer does. You're held in the arms of the commander of armies, and you're protected by the God of Jacob. The second thing that prayer does, and the reason why prayer helps us and frees us, is that the Yahweh of hosts and the God of Jacob establishes his holy city. In the second stanza of the psalm, it says that in the midst of all the violence, the political violence, God's city emerges. Right? In our day, cities are kind of an interesting place. The Houston team was just in the city, and the city can be a very interesting place. Your parents aren't going to want you to go, you know, like, you know, wally dealing around, you know, in the city. Why? Because the cities are, they're beautiful and marvelous. They have a lot of cool things, but they're also very violent and very dangerous in many ways, right? People in the inner city missions, I think, all saw that our inner city, downtown Houston, is really where life is, like, really vibrant. Life is really, like, popping over there. But most people don't live there. Why? Because it's congested, it's violent, it's dangerous. But the city in God's day, particularly in these days, was different. The city was also where life was best, but the city was also where life was most peaceful. City was a place that was civilized, a place of goodness and trust. And as we learned in Revelation, for those of you who are with us, a city, the new city, the holy city, is what God is going to bring. And the city in Scripture is also where God lives. Eugene Peterson says this about the city. I think it's wonderful. He says, God is not an occasional tourist to our shores. He set up habitation here, not as a camper, but as a citizen, but there is a city of God. It is in the same world where violence is, which means that we need not go off looking for God in a quiet, secluded glen. But basically what he's saying is, the fact that there's a city of God means that you can trust that God is alive. That you don't have to go off somewhere looking for God, that God is right here with us. And interestingly also, if you read in the psalm, it says that alongside this great city is this great river. In the ancient world, any great city always had a river. If your city didn't have a river, that means your city was no good. If your city didn't have a river, that means your city wasn't nice. But if you had a river, that means your city meant something and it was something. And so what God is telling us that the city that he's establishing in the middle of all the chaos is a great city. It's not just some put-together, whatever, ho-hum city. It is meant to be something. But notice what it says about the city, which is most important. Verse 5, God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. The word for help that is used here in Hebrew is, used, is related to the word for catastrophe or terrifying thing. It describes something that's really completely falling apart. Now, interestingly, this same word for help that is used is also used two other times in the psalm. In verse 2, it says, Though the mountains slip and shake, that word, 
into the heart of the sea. And in verse 6, the nations made an uproar, the kingdoms tottered. See, the mountains shake and crumble. The nations and the kingdoms, they shake and they totter. But the city of God will not be moved, will not be shaken. This is the psalmist's way of saying, no matter what, creation is not safe, civilization is not safe, but God and his city is totally safe. Why? Because God is the very present help, it says in verse 1. And the God who has been the help will always help her when morning dawns, says in verse 5. Literally, in, in Hebrew, it says, at the crack of dawn, right? And what this is saying is two things. One, God is always there. No matter what happens in any day, God is always there. Why? Because every day, no matter how terrible your day is, the dawn always comes up, does it not? The sun always rises and the sun always sets. Jesus is described as the morning star a lot of times in Scripture, and the reason is because the morning star always comes around in the nightfall. God is always there. And also the reason why God at the crack of dawn is your help is because we need not wait for God to show up. He's first thing in the morning. He is there, for his new mercies are new every morning. But let's put it all together. When I first thought of this psalm in the beginning, I thought, hmm, I believe that when life is crazy that I should pray. But I realize that many of you probably don't. That if I told you and your life was going crazy and everything was falling apart and I told you the thing that you need to do is to pray, you'd probably look at me and be like, okay, pastor, cool. And then you'd probably be like, nope. We were having praise team practice and I asked the praise team, there was about 10 of us or whatever, I said, if I told you that the thing that you must do when you are going through really, really rough times when life is crazy is that you need to pray. That is the most important thing that you should do. How would you react? The vast majority of the people, and again, this is not a bad thing, said, you know what, I wouldn't believe you. I said, from zero to 10, if 10 was like, oh yeah, pastor, I'm down, I'm gonna pray when life gets hard, and zero is like, whatever, like that means absolutely nothing. You are full of it, you know? Most people were in the zero to three maybe five range, which means most people don't think that prayer is what you should do. So why should we pray? If you're following, it's very simple, I think, though it seems complicated. When you and I pray, we are recognizing that God is bigger than the violence, number one, that he deserves our attention more than the violence, number two, and then three, this God who is this loving and this powerful is establishing a peaceful and loving city in the midst of all the chaos in which he lives and says you can live here too. And every morning, this king who loves you comes around at the crack of dawn to help you, to show you that indeed he is indeed bigger. That's why we pray. Because everything else doesn't really do anything. But this indeed does something. So in the second question of the day, and we'll finish, how then do we pray? I think we then pay attention to the two commands that God gives in the psalm. The first is, come and behold the works of the Lord. Selah, it says, be quiet, be attentive, pay attention, be present and attentive. You hear from me all the time. It's why we talked about simplicity, slowing down one thing at a time, right? We've been talking about it for a long time. This world that you live in has so many voices, but unfortunately, God's voice is very still and very small, it says. While everyone else is screaming at you, advertising at you, campaigning to get your attention, 
bombarding you with their social media feeds and their updates and, you know, things. God simply does not. He doesn't advertise his work. He doesn't campaign for his work. He doesn't scream at you or yell at you or try to grab your attention. And yet, I think God's work is inescapable if we simply were to look. My favorite psalm in all the psalms is Psalm 27. And Psalm 27.4 basically says, in the midst of all this chaos, and the chaos in 27 is also crazy, it says that the person, the psalm writer says, the one thing that I ask and I seek is to dwell in God's house all of my days, to behold and to gaze upon God's beauty and meditate on his word. How do you pray? It's very simple. You look and you see that God is bigger than the mess. You trust that God is bigger than the mess. And when you're praying, you will see that God is working. Now, I shared the story about the pastor who son passed away, um, was riding the bike. The other detail that I didn't share with you in the beginning, because it's more appropriate now, is that a month prior to him passing away, that same 21-year-old tried to commit suicide. Failed, thankfully. Survived, went to the hospital and survived. But then you've got to be feeling this, right? Imagine you're a father, or imagine it's your brother or whoever, someone you love, and they tried to unfortunately commit suicide, and it didn't work. And so they survived. And you're so thankful that they survived and that it didn't go down that way. And then literally a month later, gets on a bike, is riding around his neighborhood or whatever, wherever it was, and then gets hit by a car, and then he passes away. Imagine what you feel, right? Now I heard, and when people reached out to him, and they asked him how he was doing, apparently this is what he said. He said, I'm thankful. Because God did not take my son a month ago, though he could have. And yet he survived, and I had one month with my son, with my two sons. He has a younger brother. And we got to spend time together. I got to hear his hurts. I got to feel his pain. And we got to spend real time thinking, loving, doing things that a family should. And I got to, I felt God and, and our family relieving his pain and his loneliness. And so we had a month that we would not have had if not for what had happened. That pastor, he was praying. He was looking and realizing that God is bigger than the chaos and the mess. That he could focus on the pain and the chaos and the hurt, and all that would do is draw him further and further in and make him feel more terrible and fill his head with lies and all the things that are happening. But no, what he decided and what he felt to do, because he knew better, I think, was to trust that God is bigger. And he looked. He beheld God's glory. And he saw what God was doing. And he got a month, the best month that he's ever had with his son. And then when it was time for his son to go, he said, God, I release him so that he will never hurt anymore. Behold and look. That's how you pray. And the number two thing that he tells you then is he says, be still and know that I am God. Stop. Slow down. Be still. Quit rushing so much. Long enough, 
Stop rushing long enough to see that there's more to life than what's right in front of your eyes. Quit rushing. Stop long enough because when you do, you cannot and you will not ever be alone because you will build relationships with the God who wants you. He's saying quit rushing so much because when you stop rushing, you will finally hear what God wants from you, what he wants with you, and what he's calling you to know, calling you to do. Stop. Be still. Take a look. And when you do, he says, you will know. Right? Know that I am God. And we finish here. I've mentioned this a couple times, but I've always found it interesting, and sorry if it's a little bit more graphic than uh, you need to, but I think all of you guys uh, have been in sex ed, so you guys are okay. The word to know, yada, in Hebrew, is not just like, ooh, I know that Kevin is wearing a pink shirt today. The word to know has a sexual connotation, as in, like, intercourse. As in, Adam knew Eve, it says in Scripture, but Mary did not know Eve. Joseph, it says. Okay? Get the drift? So knowing, and the word used here, and all throughout the Hebrew Bible particularly, knowing takes much more of an intimate and like real and serious thing than just kind of a knowledge that you have in your life. Knowing is what a husband and a wife does. It's meant to be serious. It's meant to be like, you know? So the most intimate relationships that you have are, in, are the ones in which you know. And again, more biology. When a husband and a wife know each other well, generally what happens as God blesses is that life is created. You have babies. I have three of them. I'm so thankful. But if you follow the meaning of the word, not only do you actually make physical life when you know one another, as you can probably tell, with only, if the most intimate relationships you have, the most closest bonds you have with your friends, your family, and other people, life gets created out of those. Love gets created out of those, right? Energy gets created out of those relationships. For some, music gets made out of those relationships. Others, ideas happen. Inventions happen. In life, when you know, life is the result. New visions are seen and realized. New understandings, ideas, they pop. So here's what it all means. And then maybe this is a takeaway. And sorry it's been a, if it's been a little complicated. I feel like it has. I'm trying to figure out whether I'm making sense or not up here. But here's the conclusion. Here's the takeaway. The world we live in is a messy place. I think you and I agree. It's a violent and chaotic place. I think you and I agree. And most oftentimes, maybe it seems like whenever life goes crazy and it goes wrong in this way, there's absolutely nothing you can do. You feel helpless. You feel alone. There's nothing we can do to fix it or to handle it. And so we withdraw, we suppress. As Asians, we love to do that for most of us. We suppress, we hold it in, and just try to barely just make it, be bigger and stronger. But no, God says, he says, you must pray, we must pray. It is the thing we must do. Why? Because in praying, we see God like we've never seen him before. In praying, we give attention to him as we've never given him before. As we pray, he shows us what he's doing and what he's up to in life. And when you see him, you then begin to be still. Take the time to actually know God. And when you know God, life happens. Things change. Minds evolve. And creativity follows. I want to finish with this quote. Again, from Eugene Peterson. I think he's uh, done the greatest amount of work on the Psalms. And I think he says this. He says this. He 
says, civilization, or life, is littered with unsolved problems. I think we agree. And baffling impasses. The best minds of the world, he says, are at the end of their tether. Basically, the most smartest people in the world haven't figured out everything that they need to figure out, and they know that they're at the end of the rope. He says, the most knowledgeable observers of our human condition, they're badly frightened because they know there's not much that they can do. But he says, the most relevant, important maybe even, contribution that Christians can make at these points of impasse is the act of prayer. A determined, a repeated, a leisurely meeting with the personal and living God. Why? Because new life is conceived in these meetings. Brothers and sisters, we need to pray. Tung Tech shared it just not too long ago. He woke up every morning and he prayed that God would give him the strength and the courage to deal with what was about to happen. With the little boy who kept calling him Chinese. Without it, you will fail. Without it, you will crumble. The pressures of the world, they are all together too much. But when you and I pray, God begins to change the way we see, the way we think, and the way we hear, the way we know. When we pray, we're taking time to stop. And then when we know God, God makes life the best life happen in ways that you've never experienced before. Let us pray. Father, we give you thanks and we praise you for you are a God unlike any other. And we want to say in honesty and in faith that the world we live in is a crazy, crazy place. And because we are mere humans, small, frail, fragile, Oftentimes we feel like there's nothing that we can do to battle, to fight. But God, you tell us that there's something indeed that we can do, and that is to pray. And Father, we want to admit to you now that it seems like when we pray, it doesn't do anything. Prayer is weak. It's passive. People will tell us, you got to go do something about your issues. But you tell us, pray, be still. Know that I am God, and I will establish my city. I will do the work that you cannot. I will give you hope and life that you cannot without me. And we pray that we would trust and know that indeed you are doing so, Lord. Give us this faith and this courage. Be with the Rogers family. Be with this pastor's family. Be with all of us as we learn to know what it means to pray, why it is we pray, and then see the life that's created as we pray. All for your glory, God. Amen. I'm going to give you a moment just to kind of reflect and pray as I invite the praise team up here.